out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the record producer, Mark Saunders. And this actually is going to be part three, because um, I've already done parts one and two. That's the way it normally works. Um, and obviously, a fantastic and varied career. Um, we got up to Cindy Lauper in the last one. This is going into America and working with people like Marilyn Manson and lots more besides. So, um, yes, after some casual chat with Mark, we got down to that interesting subject that was America and what happens next. Mark, it's over to you. Yeah, the last place I ever thought I'd move to, when I, I was fed up with London. I, I kind of, when I went, because so Cindy was done in America. Did we not talk about the Cindy project? Yeah, and you you you've yeah. done some recording in Spain as well. Yeah, yeah, that was that was with Naina Cherry, and uh, and then Cindy was like, "Oh, I love the sound of that," and then it turned into this massive, overblown, five hundred thousand dollar album budget in a mansion. So, we, did we not talk about that bit? Yeah, we did, and the and the record and the, the mixing desk as well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um. That was that was when I went to America, and while I was in America, you know, when I thought I wasn't going to ever work again because I couldn't bear the idea of being in the studio with anybody else, um, I, you know, took that road trip uh, around America for six months um, in a van, and then I got the new manager in America because I decided, okay, I'm going to stay in America. I'm just, I'm fed up with London anyway. Um, and um and i'd met my ex-wife towards the end of um cindy's record so i just had a reason to stay there uh so i rented out my house in london and then went on this road trip and then found a new manager when i was in la and he got me the david byrne gig and um who was the you know the polar opposite of cindy and a very pleasant experience um and then i ended up so my ex-wife had a company doing jingles and that's how i ended up uh, we put, put a studio together in New York um, in Hell's Kitchen. And so she had her bit doing TV ads and my bit doing records. And then I started doing some writing for her, um, which was pretty lucrative writing, you know, 30 second, one minute pieces of music. And you could make make more money than you make on a whole album. So um, I did that as well as my stuff. Um and you know, I still, I did some more work with David Byrne. I mixed um, I mixed a song called "You Be Jesus." Um, so I mixed the whole album. We talked about that one, right? Yeah. So then, yeah, then later on, I mixed a couple of songs for another uh, album, and then um, and then I recorded a song with him, which was great in my studio, um, called glass concrete and stone that was a really interesting it was not the first time i'd worked with him with a whole band and he was just so great with the band he had a brilliant way of like everybody was happy and everybody felt like they got their they got their creative input but yeah. somehow he he steers it back in the most gentle way so that nobody realizes he's actually just getting exactly what he wants 
but he's he's allowed everybody their expression you know which was brilliant it was it was so cool to watch and yes. obviously the band who'd been touring with him um for a while really liked him and um it was really pleasant and then at one point he sat down with the lyrics and he was asking me my opinion of the lyrics and i thought christ this <laughs> is david Byrne. you know this is the guy that that wrote Psycho Killer that was out, like I was listening to when I was like 17 in a disco and he's asking me my opinion about his lyrics. And he was, he's just, just, you know, he's just a nice guy with, without a big ego. And um, I think I made a couple of comments and he was just, you know, he did the same thing. He kind of went back to what he wants. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had my input and, it, you know, it made me feel good. Um, so that was a really nice experience. And um, and then I had a call from my manager saying, um, Marilyn Manson needs a studio to do a remix. Um, do you want to do it? And I was thinking, sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> As you would with Marilyn Manson. And um, so he, he'd been um, putting off doing this remix for, of a song for a soundtrack from a film for a film called from hell with um johnny depp and uh he'd been putting it off he'd been on tour and he'd been making the drummer the drummer was sort of in charge of the electronic side of stuff and on the road poor ginger the drummer had been setting up a mobile studio that they had with them on tour like nearly every night waiting for marilyn who never showed up and this had been going on for months and then the drummer told me even even on Christmas Day, when they had two days off from touring for Christmas, Marilyn said, meet me at my house in Florida. We'll do it then. So Ginger drove like, I can't remember how many hours he told me he drove, set the gear up in Manson's house and Manson never showed up. So there was this really weird thing going on between Marilyn and the drummer where he just seemed, to, Marilyn seemed to love torturing him. Um and um, so the drummer showed up for this mix. I think we, they booked three days to do this remix, which is quite a long time, really. Um, and Ginger arrived with a, some bunch of gear, and he was looking really, he was obviously terrified of Manson. He, he was saying to me, oh, I think, I've, I think I've screwed up. Manson usually wants all of the sounds for everything we've ever done in case he wants to use something. And, I think I've got everything apart from one hard drive that has gone in the wrong flight case and it's on its way to Japan for the next leg of the tour. And um, sure enough, when Manson did show up after two days of not showing up at all, on the third day he showed up and one of the first things he said to Ginger was, hey, do you have that hard drive? And he named what it was and Ginger just let out a... <laughs> He literally made that kind of noise and went, no, it's, it's, it's on its way to Japan. I'm really sorry. Poor guy. And, um, and Ginger, it was all very, it was extremely rock and roll. Like, um, Matt Manson showed up kind of in, in civvies, you know, he didn't have his ass hanging out of his trousers or anything. And he wasn't wearing makeup, but he was, He's still right, really tall. He was all dressed in black with a black cowboy hat. And he was with Dieter, Tom, Dieter Von Tees, who's like famous burlesque uh, model, uh, dancer, 
and and the key and there was a guitar player as well who was looking a very LA hard rock guitar player with a with a lady friend and who looked the part as well and uh, uh then um oh there's a night there's a bit where the guitar player who's called John Five um he's uh he came he's in the studio and Marilyn came in and he said you've got to get rid of it and I was thinking what you know and it turned out he's talking about the lady friend Manson said you've got to get rid of it it shouldn't be here I was thinking he's really referring to her as an it isn't he <laughs> he's not joking either and the John went okay yeah I'll go and get rid of her of her he, I think he called her her yes um and so it was very, it was so rock and roll. And, and then at one point, the guitar player was picked up my acoustic guitar and he starts playing the most amazing bluegrass. And I was thinking, I wasn't expecting this guy to be playing, you know, after listening to the Manson track, thinking, wow. And, and he could see the surprise on my face. And he said, oh yeah, my last gig was Katie Lang. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy's like full sleeve tat, bleach blonde hair, this tall, lanky rock and roll proper rock and roll you know guitar player kind of gothic i'm thinking did you have like you know like makeup hair and makeup to, to play with manson or something or did did you have that all these tats before but uh he was a great guitar player yes and what was the and dynamic I, like in the studio with with all these people because obviously they don't all have history and they don't all go back for years so they they obviously get together for a project with probably a few closer friends but as a producer and you're there sort of almost like the host is it quite hard to sort of think god i've got to hold it or do you not take that responsibility well i think if you want to get the record done you've got to do whatever you've got to do and sometimes you're you know nurturing these people to get on with each other and, and clearly they don't sometimes i mean i had a great experience early on when i was an assistant um with the band Asia, uh, you know, who were like the mega Frog. spinal tap band. Um, and they clearly did not like each other at all. And they used to argue like crazy. And they would say, you know, just give us five minutes. And they'd walk into the live room on the other side of the glass and you could just, you know, you couldn't hear them, but you could just, they're screaming at each other. It was so tempting to put a microphone up and just record it, but um, we didn't do that. Yes. But the, um, in the end, we had to have, they booked in for six months, uh, which I was very naive at the time. It was very, I was only three months into starting in a big studio. And I, I was thinking, how do, you, how, do you, how do you use six months in a studio to make a record? This is like a live band. Yes. I, I said to my boss, how many times do you have to play the songs to get them right? You know, six months. And in fact, they went on for a, they went on for a year, and it cost over a million pounds that record. Wow! Um, but they just spent endless time, endless amounts of time wasting it, you know. But anyway, um, yeah, that was it was very over the top. That so so yeah. So in the end, we had to have a month of a keyboard player, a month because they couldn't even they didn't even want to be in the room together. So after we put down some basic tracks where they played, then. We had to do each one separately, which was really, you know, it was a horrible atmosphere and the record was pretty horrible. Yes. Uh, 
it's got no vibe at all because there was none in the studio. Um, and, you, and, and sort of during that period, obviously, that must felt. Did it feel like a very long year? Thinking, oh my god, this is never going to end. Yeah, well, they moved to another studio after six months, fortunately. But it was it was pretty torturous. Um, it was just a lot, you know. They just they had too much money, and they each one had their private, you know, personal roadie. So, um, you know, they would. They was they never wanted to do anything much, and like the guitar, the bass player, uh, John Wetton. If, if you said, "Okay, it's time to do that bass now," he go, "Oh, I think the strings need changing," and he call his roadie, and and say, "Can you change the strings?" And the roadie would be like, "Well, I changed them yesterday," <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, and there's there's famous bass players who've never changed their strings. You know, you don't need to change even guitars. If you if you put new strings on and you record, they sound terrible. They need to they need to not be shiny and brand new to record. Yes. But they they got their roadies to change, you know, just because they wanted to put off actually doing any work. And the same with the the drummer. Did you? Carl. I mean, did you see? You know, like obviously you had that experience with the guitarist when you picked up the acoustic guitar. Did you sort of think, God, yeah, these guys, you know, I can see certain genius here, or did you think? Blimey, you guys have been really lucky and this bubble's not going to last. Oh, I think, well, somebody like that, I think he's beyond a bubble. If he can play, if he can play Manson and tour with Manson and Katie Lang, I think, I think he's got a pretty great career, you know. Yes. If that adaptable. I mean, there's loads of, loads of bands that I've worked with where they're not great musicians at all. But, you know, like Madness, um, I worked with Madness at, when I was at the studio and I was sort of virtually graduating from uh, assistant to engineer and um, none of them were like great players, but that's what made them really quirky because they, the guitar player could not remember what he played in the first verse and couldn't replicate it when you came to do the second verse. Right. So it was always different. And then, you know, when I, when I got to work, I mean, I'd already heard many, this was like one of their last albums um, by the time I started in the studio. So I'd already been listening to these great singles on the radio for years. And then when I finally met them, it made sense that, you know, why they're, they're just so quirky because they they don't know how to do things the right way. You yes. know? And, and that was, that was a big uh, change to go to America actually thinking about it because when I went to America, you know, all these musicians, loads of them, they've all been to Berklee College of Music and they know their stuff and they're really polished and they practice. And I can't imagine the guys from Madness probably ever practiced much once they became famous. Mm. But, um, but there was something, you know, I started to think, I kind of miss those guys because I'd say to some, you know, guitar player in America, America, and I'm, you know, I never learned to read music. I uh, just, it's all by ear for, for me. And I'd say, oh, can you try doing blah, blah, blah? And they go, oh, no, technically that's not, you wouldn't do that. No. And I go, might sound good, though. <laughs> <laughs> and it was hard to get, you know, I would have got more out of an English guitar player because he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been so knowledgeable. He wouldn't have been told that you can't do this and that. And I think that's why a lot of English music 
it's really um you know it's unique and it's different and we've come up with different genres because people are mixing and matching and not worried about playing by the rules yes and so um, that that was a big difference yeah and with with a character like marilyn manson did you think god this is the future captain beefheart or frank zapp or did you think once this once this goes it will you know he'll never you know his his time is going to be quite short and then that will be it or did you think i am in the room with a kind of a genius i think he is uh you know i think he is a genius um i mean when i started listening to the lyrics to the song it was a, it was like oh my god this is heavy i mean it was the track was called nobody's and it was you know really about sort of the losers you know people who don't fit in and you know threatening to kill people it was it was pretty um out there and not not something i'd want to listen to or want my kids to listen to um, yes. but you know the for he he made great sounding records and his voice was phenomenal when i soloed his voice without any other gunk on it just a raw vocal file it was it was like chillingly you know it was so full on like nobody's ever had to say to marilyn could you do it with just a bit more energy you know <laughs> it's like the last thing anybody's ever said to marilyn i would imagine you know because he's just intense you know and um so he's the real thing you know i think he's definitely yes. the real and how does that compare when you worked with um Femme Cutie, not Femme Cutie, as I probably said earlier. Fella. Fella. Yeah. Uh, well, that was that was a brilliant, that was a really fun mixing project um, because it was partly because it was in Paris. I got flown to Paris to um, for about three weeks to mix this record. And um, he was just a fabulous guy. And um, he was really funny and... Um, just just an absolute joy to be in the studio with and he was so appreciate appreciative of you know people who were working with him and there was a great um producer uh, sodi i think his name was s-o-d-i who, who'd worked with um fella as well but he's quite young i don't he must have been really young when he worked with fella but um that was that was really just great i mean it was all down on tape so he, he, uh, Femi was just like hanging around and um, making us laugh a lot. Yeah. So it was a, it was a were really. You, were you were, were you kind of surprised that how much fun it was that because sometimes with the this sort of a son of a, somebody who's been famous and possibly wealthy, sometimes they're not always the easiest people and they're kind of slight arrogant. So was that was that a surprise to you to you that um, he was such? Um, a I didn't really think about it. I don't. I don't think there's a lot. Of, you know, massive wealth. Um, you know, I think I think they probably got ripped off a lot. You know, in those days with fe Fella. Um, yes. I don't know if you know somebody made money probably, but you didn't. I mean, he, he uh, Femi did not come across as as a spoiled son of a famous artist at all. Yes. He worked. He worked his butt off, uh, and. I think not long after that, he came to New York and played some shows and the shows were absolutely incredible. Like 
he plays for like three hours and that's about half as long as he normally plays when he's in um, Nigeria. He said, people, people are like, riot if you play for three hours and go off. <laughs> they expect, um, they expect yeah. their money worth. And he was an absolutely amazing performer. And he's built like a boxer, like a flyweight boxer. And he basically jumps up and down while he's playing the saxophone. And just incredible energy. I've never, I've never seen shows like it. It was just with about 10 people on stage and just magical. Nothing that I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Um, maybe a fellow with the same kind of deal. Yeah. Cool. Did you, um, and then, I mean, and then sort of what takes you from America then, then you, is this the return back to the UK after that? Yeah. Well, I was in, I was in America for 21 years. Um, so I, um, only came back in 2017 after, uh, a change of president made me think, uh, oh, it's time to go. The yeah. decision, the decision was made the day after the last election and I have no regrets because it seems to have plummeted downwards since I left anyway. Yes, it's, it's, it must be very difficult. I, I sort of, you know, listening to various interviews and podcasts, I think the, the country is now in a state of sort of, um, they're, quite, they're quite worried, aren't they? There's a, there's a panic with, a, with, obviously, not all the population, but 49% say, are sort of are thinking it doesn't matter what the results are, we're not going to get rid of the president. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um... But I felt like it was the end of the Roman Empire when George Bush got back back in for the second time. I couldn't believe how, you know, somebody who started an illegal war in Iraq could get voted back in again by by people whose the sort of demographic who voted for him were the people whose kids are more likely to be in the army out there fighting an illegal war and getting killed, and yet they still voted to for him to you know carry on and I just thought then I wanted to grab my kids and leave you know but my wife's American she would never leave but my ex-wife I mean and uh, so but yeah I mean now George Bush seems like a stately orator you know like a, a, a magnificent politician and yet at the time he seemed not like that one one bit but it's it really is now the end of the Roman Empire. I think I don't see America recovering from this, not in you know the near future anyway. Yes, I'm and, really glad about that. Yeah, I know it's not it's it's a it's a very strange time. And with yourself having to sort of move back after 21 years, did that did it feel like a certain amount of fresh air? Even though we're um, we're now in the world of Brexit, so that's not even much, <laughs> is it really? So? Yeah, that was. My plan was to come back and and then Brexit would magically go away and everything would be fantastic. You know, I'm back in England and England would bounce back and then Boris got in. So I was thinking, oh, no, I'm being followed by Trumps. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a Trump clone in here now. So, yeah, this, this wasn't quite how I expected it to pan out. But yes. um, it is musically, I'll tell you what was brilliant for me was coming back to England and discovering Radio 6 music 
it's going to sound like an ad for Radio 6 music. Yes, but, but... <laughs> um, my brother-in-law, who's you know lives here, had been telling me about it, you know, saying, oh, you've got to listen to it. But I don't think we could get it in America anyway, or not at the time. Or, you know, I wasn't totally convinced that it was worth it. But when I, when I came home, I bought a car when I got here, and it had digital audio, a dab radio in it. And I put on six music, and I was just instantly hooked on that radio station. I couldn't believe how great that radio station is. And, and you know, after three years, I still love it. I think they're just amazing. The, the, you know, the amount of diversity and the eclecticness of the DJs is absolutely mind-blowing. Yes. Um, so I can't believe that they can play, you know, I can listen to any, any time and they're playing stuff that I like you know stuff i've never heard of but that i would like i can't there's so so rarely something on there that i think oh that's a load of rubbish there was mm-hmm. a um was a cover of um uh the fall what was their disco record they covered lost in music lost in music which i thought oh my god this is one of the worst things i've ever heard in my life <laughs> <laughs> and i wanted to, it was one of those moments where I wanted to pull over and text them and go, now nah, you've done it. <laughs> it's that funny, is. Because I, I have a slight soft spot for that record, mainly because I like the original. And then I thought, oh, Marky Smith. It just made me laugh that Marky Smith obviously decided that was a good cover. It was like, I knew Marky. Yeah. That was a moment. Yeah. I was going to post, I was going to post something like uh, Little known fact, if you if you gathered a few monkeys and gave them musical instruments, within a few days they'd play a better cover of um, <laughs> Lost in Music than The Fall. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, that one to me. That I, was that the was, only one. So that was Lost you, on. So your, your CV is phenomenal with the amount of stuff that you've done and, and sort of the, the decades and musical, musical genres that you've put together. I mean, because you've done the sort of indie pop stuff with Lloyd Cole and then sort of the chameleons and then you sort of work with people like Lisa Stansfield and you know Nina Cherry obviously and then Tricky I mean how do you how do you sort of manage to keep that kind of on that kind of zeitgeist because I, I noticed I suppose with a lot of musicians producers and also photographers they have a kind of a period where you think well they really got that five years and then after that you can sort of see that they're obviously having a bit of a time off and they kind of miss the next wave and they're never really going to be back. So they're just going to, like Mike Rock is always going to talk about David Bowie, isn't he? But you think, I wonder what he was doing in the other decades, the photographer, you know. So, yeah. so how did you manage to, to sort of keep that hunger? It's a bit like John Peel, you know, always looking for the next thing. And as John Walters once said, we'd be in trouble if John Peel ever hit puberty, which was a, a nice idea. Um, so yeah, how did you... Keep that kind of energy and sort of kind of excitement. Uh, I've had enough. Um, ooh, well, the, you need to earn money as well, so that's that's quite an incentive. Um, uh, well, you know, I mean, when when you're working with bands and and you're enjoying it, it's like the best job in the world, really, because it's you know you're not you're not working, you're like playing, you know, when you really get on with the band and you really like the music, um, which doesn't happen as often as you'd like, but, but when it works, it's brilliant, you know, um, it beats, beats doing anything else. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I'm always, I'm always wanting to make, um, 
pop music there's always a quest to make the perfect pop song which i don't i think i mean one one of the most perfect ones i think i've made is buffalo stance which was one of the first productions that i co-production with tim simon um from bomb the bass that was that was the easiest thing i ever did and um uh you know so there's always a quest to try and make an you know another one of those or mix a love song like you know the cure songs yes uh, so i i still love pop music really yeah and is it and I never did drugs i never did drugs either so <laughs> i think i think that that's probably keeps your energy up a bit if you haven't done that well quite it keeps the yes it doesn't take the edge off does it really that sort of the dreaded edge so what would you what would you say to a 18 year old self because you've got one hell of a story from that that early days of your your sort of time with the valentine band not band but you know with with those guys and then sort of you know coming from was it kind of a kind of quite a country background oh yeah i was born on a farm you know on a farm with no music in the family you know there's no leg up not even not even musical influences within my family until my sister who was only two years younger than me started playing you know music but so i you know my my current wife is really into visualization and she's like you are a great visualizer look what what you've done you know and i feel like well maybe she's right you know because it was a big stretch for me to go from from being on a farm with you know, not in a town even, let alone a major city or with a music scene, to end up working in a studio in Shepherd's Bush, you know. And then there's been a number of times when when I end up working with somebody that I sort of thought about a lot um, and wanted to. And, and so I think, I think you do have to, you know, I think visualisation is actually a pretty strong tool. Yes. Um, I've come to the conclusion now I'm like 60 something that it's not only hard work. Um, but, you know, I did, I did, I did put everything I had into it. Once I, once I gave up playing the drums and I got into the studio, then I was on it. You know, I, I didn't waste any time. I learned as much as I could and listened to as many people as I possibly could in the shortest amount of time because I, I really felt like. I'm in the right place. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. So it felt great. You know, I, I never, I worked so many crazy hours and um, I didn't mind it at all, you know. Yeah. I never, because I knew what I was doing was right. That's good. Well, look, Mark, well, thank you ever so much. And thank you for part three. But that's been great. I didn't realise quite how much there was, actually. So, um, yeah, that's been fantastic. So thank you for, for giving me three three bites of this. Otherwise, it'd be incredible. I didn't realise. I mean, there was some, well, your first band, you know, obviously was just amazing. And then your mission and the Lloyd Colbert. And then obviously Tricky was just also extraordinary. So, uh coming up to Marilyn Manson and, and beyond. So yeah, well, thank you ever so much for all this. This has been fantastic. So um, yes. Oh, I'll just say one thing though about, I think, you know, not being set in, in what you listen, you know, having a broad musical um, to palette, you know, that you like to listen to really helps. Like if you're like, oh, 
um, I mean, so many people in the studio business were like, oh, yeah, that's too pop or, you know, I don't like pop music. That's going to restrict to you what, you know, who you get to work with. Um, you know, I'm, well, I'm sure I lost out on working with some people because I was too pop, but um, I think I prefer it that way around. Yeah. But I, th- I think, you know, you need a, I think the people I've worked with, like Tricky, turned out to have a very eclectic taste, which I wasn't expecting at all after listening to the first two songs. I thought, you know, I sort of put him in a box that he wasn't in at all. Like he, he, he listened to all kinds of music. And also Robert Smith is, you know, he doesn't just listen to goth or um, like he loves to DJ when he's on tour. He's got a great musical taste. So I think the people, the people that kind of make it are not um, narrow-minded. I think that's I think that's a huge deal not not to be too narrow, you know, narrow-minded, especially if you're a musician, because then you haven't got so many influences to draw on and hopefully come up with something new. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're a punk musician, you only listen to punk, then you're never likely to make some cross, you know crossbreed punk with something else you know that nobody's thought of and that is the last part of the interview that i had with mark saunders um a huge thank you for giving me three interviews for that that's um beyond the call of duty anyway um if you want to know any more about mark he has a good website mark saunders just google it producer you'll find it it's fantastic anyway this has been david Eastall, the c86 show if you want to contact me you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, one of those three, all, all, all of them, just do C86 Show. And also all these have been archived and you can find you can find these interviews on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. It's good stuff, I think. Anyway, have a great week. <laughs>